0: Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. For, instead of the virus being able to hop from person to person to person to person, spreading and spreading, sickening some of them, but not all of them. And the ones that it doesn't sicken don't know they have it. And then they give it to even more people because they didn't recognize they were... Right. Instead of the virus being able to hop from person to person to person, potentially mutating and becoming more virulent and drug resistant along the way. Now we know that the vaccines work well enough that the virus stops with every vaccinated person, a vaccinated person gets exposed to the virus. The virus does not infect them. The virus cannot then use that person to go anywhere else cannot use a vaccinated person as a host to go get more people that means the vaccines will get us to the end of this I guess four years of Russia, 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 and I have Donald Trump's tax returns wasn't enough. Now it's, if you're vaccinated, well, COVID just disappears, Rachel Maddow. I thought she was meant to be MSNBC's smart one. Apparently not. Welcome, dear friends. You're listening to America First with me, Sebastian Corker. This is one-on-one. This is where we go beyond the talking points, beyond the sound bites with somebody who knows of what they speak, and we give them an opportunity to go deep dive. Today, I feel very, very intimidated because on his bio, I know he's a good guy, he's a smart guy, and he's got an accent that, you know, it's a little bit like mine. But he's published seven books. I've only written three. It's a delight to have him with us. He is the author, most recently, of The Madness of Crowds from The Spectator, Douglas Murray. Welcome
1: back to One on One. Hey, great to be with you, Sebastian. And the three books isn't so bad, you know. It's, it's, uh, it's not bad going at all. Well, <laughs> it,
0: it, here I didn't realise until I got the final invitation. That's the only way you get onto C-SPAN for the two-hour-long interview as an author. That's their, you know, it's got to be three, not two. Not one. It's like the holy hand grade of Antioch. It must be three. And we did that. And it it was quite a shock. I was in the studio and said, so what are we going to talk about for an hour? I said, no, 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 Sebastian. It's for two hours. We're not going to do that to you today. We would love to do that. Follow this man right now, Douglas K. Murray. Did you ever think the madness of crowds would actually be even more applicable, Douglas, now than when you wrote the book, given what we have witnessed in the last two years when it comes to the coronavirus?
1: You know, what I tried to do with that book was to to lay out what I thought was the sort of vulnerability we had as a society, that we had become incredibly certain about things that actually weren't very certain. And at the same time, uh, we'd become to doubt things uh, that were very obvious, as I I say in the the madness of crowds. Things that everyone knew till yesterday suddenly became uh, sort of uh, up for grabs, I, I I give the examples of endless things in the book. One which has just kept on happening is, you know, until yesterday, if you said, what is a woman? Um, everybody could answer you. Everybody on planet Earth could answer you. And now the smartest, as it were, most overeducated uh, imbeciles in the world say, well, what is a woman? That's a really tricky one. Uh, <laughs> or, or, how, and so, or how many so, genders there are? That's a, that's a tough one, right? Yeah, how many?
0: But, but, but,
1: Yeah, absolutely. So these sorts of things were already in the atmosphere, you know? Um, And then uh, corona uh, has come along, and I think it's just added to that just madness. And what what you've just shown, that clip of Rachel Maddow, absolutely speaks to the point of it. I'm so glad you you highlight that clip. It's one of my absolute favourite media moments of the last year. And here's why. It's because Rachel Rachel Maddow is so damn certain about something she doesn't know anything about. So far as I know, up until uh, 2020, 2021, Rachel Maddow had never spoken about pandemics, virology or anything else. She'd never studied the subject. She'd never had any particularly strong views about it. She'd never written about or spoken about vaccines more. And here she is in 2021, giving this sort of sermon to the American public, saying, these are the facts, this is what we know, and this is the case, and I'm telling you the case, and she's wrong, and she's wrong. Now, and here's here's the interesting thing, and this is one of the things I pointed out in The Madness of Crowds, is, you know, we all get things wrong in our lives, Uh, but we should always try to be open to correct things when we get them wrong. And you see somebody in the position that Rachel Maddow is in cannot do that because they have decided on the line. They've decided on what the truth is. And then when unfortunate facts come along, they just have to keep going because they've already got this line. They've already said this is what happens and the virus stops when that happens. So they've got themselves into this position, but it is an absolutely classic demonstration and why the American public have quite understandably lost faith and trust in the media?
0: Well, let, let, let's stay on this for a moment, Douglas. So, um, this this question of getting it wrong admitting you're wrong and, and trying to do a course correction. After we had the elections in 16, it, it, it was what, a month in October, a month before the election, we had the New York Times say Hillary uh, Clinton has a 92% chance of winning. On the day of the election the Huffington Post says she has a 96% chance of winning. Then she is beaten, she is trounced, mm. and in January the publisher of the New York Times holds a, an editorial meeting and said, I, I, I guess we got it wrong. I I guess we were in some kind of echo chamber and we need to broaden the aperture. Have Mm. you seen any sign in any mainstream legacy media in the last five years of the broadening of the aperture? Or just, how about this, one case on a serious issue like Corona or like elections, of somebody in the legacy media saying yep, I screwed up, I'm
1: sorry, Douglas. I think this is one of the saddest things of the last decade and one of the biggest missed opportunities. You see, the way I see it is that 2016 in America was among other things, a very important moment for a segment of the American mainstream center ground and indeed left to make an incredibly important turn. A turn they had not been able to make to date and which it had taken the right a long time to recognize. And that was a turn that for better or worse was encapsulated in Donald Trump's campaign, a recognition that America had lost control of its borders, a recognition that America had been losing its manufacturing, its industry, and many jobs to China and other countries around the world, and a recognition, among other things, that there's a desire in the American people to feel good about their nation because their nation is good. Now, these are just three of the things. I could list many others, and you, Sebastian, could list many, many more. But these were very important things for the people who cared about winning elections to recognize. And the Republican Party in 2016 did recognize this, and and their candidate won. And instead of recognizing these were really important things, the left and the center and a part of the the right decided not to make the turn. They decided to pretend that the turn had not happened or that they could ignore it or that they could they could get rid of it they could they could destroy the turn and and this actually it's it's one of the lesser problems of what happened after that but it is one of the problems that such a significant swathe of american opinion formers just couldn't accept the results of the election because it was a problem for themselves and their own side you know what have the Democrats got to say now about migration? There's no reason why a left-wing party can't get on top of migration. It's happened in Europe. Certain left-wing governments have been able to get in, 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 um, in migration under control in, in Europe. There's no reason why it has to be a right-wing issue. There's no reason why it shouldn't be a left-wing issue, uh, in fact, a Democrat party issue, that American laborers are losing their jobs or being undercut by foreign competition. There's no reason to actually be a right-wing issue. It could be a left-wing issue. And yet because the left and the centrists were not willing to make this acknowledgement, this turn, they just wasted their time and everybody else's for years. And there's still no demonstration that they've learned from it. I think it's, it's a great sadness for America as a whole. Yeah, we, we, I want to examine what the
0: possible logical scenarios are for both the media and the left if they persist in isolating themselves in these cocoons. Uh, Douglas, you talked about the, the disconnect, the, the, the years now of the left and the media. Uh, which is, of course, the same, being unable to deal with their mistake or their lack of understanding what was happening in the politics in 2015, 2016. So let, let me ask you, what are the scenarios for both the media and the left? Number one, as long as you have the Jeff Bezos of, of the world, you know, drop a few billion here and there, like, uh, you know, they're buying a new Pekingese. You know, th- these things are vanity projects. The Washington Post is clearly a vanity project. Do market forces not apply? and they can do it forever? Or is there a moment of collapse? How how long can the party, the left, for example, be disconnected? How long can that disjunction between reality and that quote-unquote political elite last before there's some kind of necessary self-introspection self-intro, or can they stretch it out forever?
1: You know, you, you remember uh, there was a famous law, uh, Herbert Stein's law, uh, Stein's law is things that cannot go on won't. (laughs) And it's a fine law, but I've um, often tweaked it. Uh, A slightly more cynical version is that in my experience, things that cannot go on usually do. (laughs) That's Um, a a moderate tweak there, Douglas, a moderate tweak. it's, (laughs) It's an important one, though, isn't it? How many times have you, I, and many others looked at situations in government, in the media, in society, and said, that just can't go on. And yet, you know, a few years later, you, you look back and you see that's what you said, and the thing in question is still going on, you know? like Incompetency of this scale, that can't go on. And it goes on. So my experience would suggest this 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 disconnect can go on an awfully long time, as long as the New York Times is in funds, and it is, it'll just keep doing what it needs to do to speak to its base, as it now thinks of its readers as being. Now, I think, however, in America, that a very, very important struggle is on in this regard. And I'm not at all downhearted about it. The American media is in a very interesting place. It's quite different from in my own country of birth, uh, in Great Britain, where there's a serious right-wing media as well as some left-wing media. In America, There's very little right-wing media uh, of a conventional kind and a huge amount of left-wing media. So almost all of the newspapers are left-wing in America. Now, there's no reason in nature why that needs to be the case, just as there's no reason in nature why the tech platforms have to be run by uh, people who, like uh, um, Bezos and and Zuckerberg and others, um, make these – cack-handed attempts to sort of silence voices, particularly when they're voices from the right. There's no reason why that has to be the case. Uh, there are many significant figures, philanthropists, entrepreneurs in America, who could, if they got organized, turn this around. And I think that that may well happen in the years ahead. Uh, my view is that people, have, people are coming through the period of sort of um, uh, disorientation on the platforms. Uh, you remember about sort of five, maybe a bit longer years ago, people didn't really quite know what Twitter was doing. They didn't know, for instance, about shadow banning. They didn't know that Twitter could pretend to be publishing something but actually be dampening it down. People are so wise to that now. Uh, what person using YouTube who knows about politics doesn't now know what a censor YouTube is? And so we're sort of coming through that period. And people who who aren't particularly technologically advanced are just users of information like all of us are, are starting to be and have started to become aware of this. So now we're getting into a very exciting phase. And for America, it should be a particularly exciting phase because this is the country of innovation. In America, we should now be in this stage where new platforms arise, and they're already arising, which not only take on these other platforms, these old platforms but beat them. And I think it's the same with the newspapers. America has a number of great newspapers. They punch above their weight, they have enormous significant reach, and they may be in a minority when they are on the right, but their reach is incalculable. So I'm, I'm not at all downhearted about this. Uh, um, and I don't like the self-pitying on the right, which you sometimes hear, which is sort of all of big techs against us, the media's against us and so on. My, my question and my challenge to you on that then is, so what are you going to do to change it
0: and you're not There's worried. No way that you're...
1: America you can't change it
0: right no I mean this is the land of opportunity and invention you know of Ford and everybody else but but are you not concerned that the parlors the getters, etc will create not uh, competitors but because of the scale discrepancy it will become a ghetto for conservative voices
1: well that's certainly a part of possibility. And that's one of the things that I think people have worried about with Parliament and so on. So one of the reasons why so far these platforms to an extent haven't been able to take out, for instance, Twitter is that people actually do like to take on the other side. You know, it's, it's, it's why it's sort of fun occasionally watching Rachel Maddow. I mean, you wouldn't want your television to be tuned into her all the time. But it is enjoyable to see somebody with a totally opposing point of view and to an extent as long as platforms like twitter exist in their current form they give people the opportunity to see people with totally different opinions and then sort of wrestle it out and wrangle it out and it's true that there's a risk of a sort of ghettoization otherwise but who knows something constructive will come from this same thing with rumble Uh, something constructive will come from this there's no inevitability Uh, uh, of the current tech platforms and another just one other quick thing on this it's taken a while for people to work this out but a a former employee at at, at several of the major silicon valley firms put it best and i quote this in the manners of crowds uh, some years ago and he said the business model of the tech platforms is based on the discovery that people are willing to correct other people's behavior for free yes that is Every time you engage on Twitter with some idiot from the other side or your own side, you're falling out and you're, you're telling them they're an idiot, they're telling you you're an idiot. Every time you're doing that, nobody, nobody's getting paid for it. We're all spending our own free time doing it. And the only person that's getting rich of it are the tech uh, lords. So people are also aware of that increasingly, I think, as well. We're in a period... As I've often said, like the period after the invention of the printing press, it took a very long time for the effect of Gutenberg to be felt. We're feeling it much faster, but we're feeling it and we're using our feet and our senses to work it out. All I know is we shouldn't be working in our spare time for the tech Overlords. We shouldn't be working for them for free. That's for sure, Douglas.
0: Right at the beginning of our discussion, you, you mentioned the uh, the trans uh, extremists. As I tweeted out when I heard the news on Monday morning about who won the best actress at the Globe and Glo- uh, Golden Globes, the uh, the uh, the trans swimmer who trounced the other swimmer from Penn State. And then what was the third thing? It was oh yes, oh yes, the the winner of Jeopardy, a rather <clears throat> massive. And looking uh, at Here was Here's my. my. This came from another radio host, my friend Chris Plant, giving him full credit. Could you comment on this? Because I think this is the issue that's going to break the left's back the, the trans agenda. If a man in a skirt wins Jeopardy! If two. Husky large men are women winning the female swimming contests, and a, a man who has the chromosomes of a male wins best actress at the global uh, the Golden Globes. Doesn't it mean that men are better than women in all of these fields? And where are the feminists, Douglas? <laughs>
1: Oh, you have just led me on to the most dangerous discussion of our time. OK, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> um, where are the feminists, well, Douglas? Where, where, where's Title IX? The truth is the feminists are speaking up. One of the developments of recent years has been, particularly outside of America, feminists have been speaking up. American feminists of a great older school like Camille Paglia have been speaking up Oh, the, the, the classics. And, yeah, um, I'm
0: talking about the, the new yeah, wave ones but, are just, but, who are yeah, deafening the by new their wave. Silence.
1: I agree. The problem—I wouldn't even call them feminists. What I say is kind of young kids. Let's let's put it like that. The sort of teens and twenty-somethings—the people who who we always hear about in publishing houses who announce that you know the publishing house can't publish the next bestseller by by J.K. Rowling because it could potentially offend their non-binary friend. I mean, that, by the way, was something that was actually, actually said. That wasn't my invention. It's, but it's those people. I don't even think we're talking about a school of, as it were, feminists. I think it's just a generation who has not realized that trans rights and women's rights rub against each other very badly. Now, that's the knob.
0: Isn't that the knob, Douglas? That if, yeah. if, if, you know, women's rights cannot not exist as we perceive them to be in the 20th century, if it's if it's just nullified by mm-hmm. uh, I can be a woman if, if, if I deem myself a woman.
1: Yeah, it's 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 totally undermines the feminist cause, and and that's why I say. I mean, I say in the manners of crowds, it's notable actually the number of left wing feminists who started to point this out in recent years. And by the way, I should just mention what's something else. I, I and perhaps you in this regard might might confess. Actually, we have a certain amount of male privilege in this regard. This is a phrase I've never liked to use, but there is in this discussion some male privilege because I say things about trans which when my female friends say the same thing, they get unbelievable flack for from the trans lobby. Now, I don't know whether that's because they know that they can't particularly impress me or or make me feel any kind of fear. I'm quite hard to put off dealing with subjects uh, that I want to deal with. But I also think there's something very interesting. The victimization of women who speak out about the trans thing is noticeably stronger than any attack on people like you or me. So, so let, let, me, let me just, this is fascinating. I, so,
0: so, for example, you and I can say things that J.K. Rowling
1: as a biological oh, woman yeah. can't. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reason she, it, it's rather like the apostate thing in Islam. You, as you know, like Ayan Hirsi Ali annoys Islamists far more than you or I do because she's, uh, they see her as being a much bigger threat, somebody who's been in Islam and then leaves it. Yeah. And I think something similar is, is happening in, in the feminist uh, trans thing. I try this out almost deliberately sometimes, actually. Um, J.K. Rowling says things that are so mild and so true and so careful and she's she's no kind of bigot about anyone. Like all of us, actually, she you know she thinks that basically where there are trans people who are actually trans people and not just people who wanting attention, which I think is sometimes the case, or people who are mentally disturbed, which is sometimes the case. Um, um, you know, J.K. Rowling, like most of us, wants you know actual trans people to be treated with respect and dignity like all other other human beings. Uh, she's never said anything otherwise. I sometimes try things out just to see, as it were what I can get away with. And I always get away with it on the trans thing. I said a little bit, if you look at the the, the photos of the people on social media going for J.K. Rowling, many of them look like figures that you haven't seen outside of a painting by a Hieronymus (laughs) Bosch.
0: Let's pull back. Let's get a little bit strategic. Let's uh, get up to the 50,000 feet uh, altitude, Douglas. Um, As as a very keen observer of politics on both sides uh, of the Atlantic... Can you can you help navigate? Give us a new taxonomy. I mean, I grew up in England, born in England, grew up in London, saw the rise of Margaret Thatcher, saw that as true statecraft, um, and then we see what happened after that. What are the right labels today? The the left, right, even the conservative uh, socialist uh, has kind of broken down. Do you buy into the mm. the nationalist vice, the globalist, or is it the disconnected? elites vice the working class have you found new labels for what is happening on both sides of the atlantic
1: Uh, the left right thing has broken down quite significantly i think i'm not totally comfortable with the sort of nationalist globalist dichotomy because um uh, i i I think it's well first of all because i'm uh, well without getting it too too bogged down I i have lots of criticisms of the nature of the term nationalism, because it means different things in different places. And there are places where I think it's a very fine thing, and places where it's a very dodgy thing. I mean, you know, as I, as I said, in Berlin, just before the uh, uh, pandemic struck, you know, when Europeans are critical of nationalism, or indeed, even patriotism, it isn't because we don't trust, say, Americans with patriotism. It isn't because we don't trust, I don't know, Nigerians or Ecuadorians with patriotism, It's because we don't trust europeans with yes. patriotism because we don't trust them with nationalism specifically because we don't trust the germans uh, and that is that is just a residue fear belief but that's because uh, that it's not going to twi- go away but
0: that's because thanks to the 20th century nationalism has has an ethnic content in the european context which it doesn't of in course. the American.
1: and it's just you know we're, we're, we're still it yeah and we're still in living memory of just about living memory of that catastrophe almost destroyed our continent of birth. And um, just, just, uh, you know, there are just societies after societies across Europe that are still struggling to come to terms with it. Look at the current row in France over the presidential election yet again. You know, it goes back to a debate about history. How can France feel pride uh, in itself and get around the problem of the 1940s in France? You know, it remains a living uh, dilemma, a living problem. So I'm very, I'm very concerned about the nationalism, globalism, for that. Thing. So what, what, are better, here, what are
0: better labels?
1: I think probably one of the few that you can go for is small statist, big statist still. I think that still holds, broadly speaking, um, because here, here's a very interesting development that's happened since the, particularly since the conservative government of Boris Johnson got into power. We've now got um, an increasing number of governments in, in in Europe, and I think I would include Britain in this, that have effectively decided that the way forward is to be what we would have called right wing on identity issues, to not be fearful of patriotism, for instance. Now, as it happens, Boris Johnson is relatively weak on this, and I wrote about this in The Telegraph on Sunday. Um, But but the the, the thing they have come to is this. You're relatively right-wing in the way we used to think of it on things to do with patriotism. So you're not scared of patriotism. You're not scared of talking about the we of the nation. But that doesn't mean that you're right-wing on economics as well. In fact, you go left-wing on economics. Now, that's what the Johnson government in Britain has been doing. Uh, Record borrowing in peacetime. Uh, tax rises, not tax cuts, massive public spending, and particularly massive increased public spending on an unreformed health service. Now, this isn't only an ideological thing. It's something that they recognize works at the polls. And the same thing I think you could say is the case in France and across certain other parts of Europe. Uh, There's been a recognition that the way to power in effectively welfare states, which, of course, America is not. But but that effectively, the way to power in welfare states is to be strong on the national identity thing and spend. Now, I don't know how long that lasts for. My suspicion is that it will only last as long as the economic party lasts. But that's been become in Europe the path to power. America is different because in America, there is still a significant chunk of the American public who do not believe that increased borrowing, uh, astronomic public spending is the way forward. And as we saw recently, even a couple of members of the Democratic Party have that worry and that belief. So big government vice, small government is the easiest moniker? I think it's one of the very few that you can can identify as as existing, as, as a divide, yes.
0: And, and how are things faring? Give us a, an update. Give us a snapshot of what's happening uh, in the UK. I had, well, I think many of us had high hopes of uh, Boris Johnson, but uh, I don't know whether it was his bout with COVID or his and uh, new, new paramour, but uh, he hasn't quite lived up to the classic Conservative uh, Thatcherite vision, has he?
1: He hasn't, and uh, you know, much like America, uh, th- th- this is this is in, in part a problem of the 1980s. You know, I mean. Uh, uh, in America, quite understandably, people always say, you know, where is the new Reagan? Where is the Reagan? And in Britain, certainly on the right, the question is always where is the Thatcher? Um, Boris Johnson is certainly no Thatcher. Uh, certainly no. he's not shown himself to be. And by the way, I should just point out on this, one of one of uh, his MPs said to me some time ago, uh, well, Douglas, you've got to remember that Margaret, Margaret wasn't Margaret until about 1981. Now, that's true in some ways, although she did have very, very clear principles from the beginning. But it wasn't until she started to win on the economic front from about 1981 onwards that she really got her feet under the desk and managed to make the reforms she wanted. But here's the thing. The thing that made her different from Boris Johnson was, among other things, that Margaret Thatcher was incredible on the detail. She wasn't just fearsome. She didn't just talk about it. She wouldn't have just sent tweets about it. As you can see from the papers that have been released under the 30-year rule and which Charles Moore writes about in his excellent three-volume biography of Margaret Thatcher, you can see the documents that Margaret Thatcher worked on later – night to send back to the civil service yeah things where she would write in the margin in her own hand in pen no i said this wasn't the case i want it to be this she would return things like a almost like a schoolmistress, (laughs) sending back homework that wasn't good enough it wasn't what she'd asked for she was always on top of the detail like that it was one of the geniuses that she had she wasn't just in Instinctively great. It wasn't just that she worked hard. It wasn't just that she had a, a, a body made of iron. It wasn't any of these things or any of these things on their own. It was that she was always on top of all of the details. And she respected that of everyone else too. And that was not the, that is not the case with
0: Boris How much of it of what you're writing about, and you, you've revealed enough, thank you so much, Douglas, how much of it has to do with uh, secularism and self-hatred? Well,
1: there's a huge amount of that a huge amount of that. What I wrote about in The Strange Death of Europe, which applies so much to America as well, is this thing of um, a sort of looking for stories to tell ourselves, you know? Um, you run out of a story and, and human beings need stories. And we had stories. And there's, by the way, the term story isn't meant to be at all derogatory. It doesn't mean it's untrue. But for instance, uh, the story of Christianity is is, is a story that kept our civilization running uh, for two millennia. Um, The story of America is a story that has inspired not just Americans, millions of Americans, but millions and millions of people around the world for centuries. Now, if you strip away these stories, you either have this void, which is where, sadly, a lot of young people in particular can find themselves and they struggle through or you have to invent new stories. And what we've seen in America in recent years in particular has been an attempt mainly by the left to invent new stories. What is the 1619 project? But an attempt to invent a new story, a new story to believe in, but here's the catch. It's a story where America is all guilty. It's a story where America is all bad. It's a story where everyone who founded this country is appalling. But I think there's a way out of that. And I would, by the way, mention it to you in one single statistic. Year on year, uh, various international organizations, including the UN, chart where people in the world want to move. So much of the world wants to migrate. So much of the world wants to move from the countries they're in, from good countries, from benighted countries, from peaceful countries, and from countries of war. What's the number one country still? This (laughs) year, as in every previous year, that people want to come to The one one
0: that we are told was built on on racism and slavery, right? That's the one, Douglas.
1: Yeah. You know, there is no significant movement to Eritrea (laughs) or Nigeria or Somalia or or anywhere else. Nobody is looking for the great freedom of China. You do not see people breaking through the borders of China, apart from from North Korea, which is the only country in the world less free than China. Apart from there, you see nobody wanting to move to China. Now, we should take a lesson from this. There's something we've been doing right in America, which means it's something
0: we should probably keep doing. That's why it's all the more important to save this republic, because if this one falls, there is nowhere else to escape to. And I say that as the child of those who escaped a communist dictatorship. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy.